Hi, good evening everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Hull, and on behalf of our co-sponsors, the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship at the Bush School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America, and our director, Father Charles Hulos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight and to introduce Luke Burgess, entrepreneur in residence at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship and co-author of Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person. Luke holds degrees from the Stern School of Business at New York University and the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome. He is a four-times founder slash CEO of startups in Silicon Valley and has spent time in seminary formation and has integrated fundamental training and discernment as part of, as part of the basic HR processes for two of his companies. Lucas, co-founder of Escape, Inscape, an organization that helps young people discover, embrace, and fully live out their unique personal vocation with Joshua Miller, who also co-wrote Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person. Tonight, Luke will discuss his newest book, Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person. Bishop Robert Barron calls the book a solid piece of research, eminently practical, practical and an easy-to-read treatise. Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, says Luke and Mike Miller have a keen grasp of our current culture, its challenges, and what to do about them. And Andreas Widmer says, this book is a call to all of us, personally and as a church, to help each person uncover their call from God and radically pursue it during their unrepeatable time on earth. And with that, please join me in welcoming Luke Burgess. Thank you, Rosemary, and thanks for everybody uh, for being here and taking the time out tonight, and especially the Catholic Information Center and the Bush School of Business, both organizations that I know care deeply about helping individuals thrive according to their created design and the purpose for which they're called in this life. Um, the Leonine Forum uh, at the Catholic Information Center for Young Professionals and many other things that they do and at the Bush School of Business, so many different ways. Uh, we're one of the few schools in the country that I know of anywhere that actually has a class called the Vocation of Business, um, which I, I will probably be co-teaching next year. Um, and that's why we're here tonight, is to talk about vocation. I know that this is something that concerns us all. Uh, my co-author, Josh Miller, I, I was privileged to be able to write a book with one of my mentors. Very privileged to be able to do that. Unfortunately, Josh could not be here tonight. He's in the hills of eastern Ohio. Uh, Josh and I have very different stories. Josh has six children. I don't have any children yet. Josh is a professor of philosophy, and I am a professor of philosophy antagonizer, uh, contrarian, uh, not an academic. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I, I kind of stir the pot. It's amazing that I'm actually at a, at a university. So we're very different, but 
the beauty is that our, our stories became interwoven through a friendship and because Josh entered into my life as a mentor. And this book is one of the many fruits of that relationship. And in a way, you're all part of this, this story, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to start by speaking about a very particular story from my own life about vocation. And I've got to take you to Las Vegas in order to tell this story. And I want to tell you about how I met a sadistic poker player in the Bellagio Casino of Las Vegas, Nevada. I was 27 years old and, and living in Las Vegas. I was a tax refugee from California. I started a few companies in the state of California, and I eventually decided to move to Nevada, mainly for business reasons. Vegas is the last place that I ever expected to live in my life. I'm a kid from Michigan. The most exciting, glamorous thing that we do in Michigan is grill hot dogs. Okay, So I'm a Michigan kid in Las Vegas. And one night, I'm at the Bellagio Casino, and I'm playing poker with, a, with an entrepreneur friend of mine named Tommy. Now, Tommy is your stereotypical entrepreneur story. He's a dropout of Harvard. He started a tech company at a young age and sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars. These people really exist. He, he was my friend. And he was an investor in my company. And we were at the Bellagio in a poker tournament. Now, poker tournaments can last like 24 hours sometimes. You, you go take a nap in your room and come back down and keep playing. And we're on a break from the poker plane, drinking our club soda. Uh, I highly recommend not drinking alcohol during 24-hour long poker tournaments. So we're having our club soda. And Tommy turns to me and he asks me a question. He says, Luke, have you ever thought about getting married? I was 27 years old at the time. And thought about it for a second, and I said, well, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I want to get married someday, of course, you know, and I said, what about you, and I'll never forget what he said, he looked at me with sort of sadness in his eyes, is the only way that I could describe it, and he said, Luke, if you can prove to me that I'll be happier if I get married than if I don't get married, then I'll get married, and prove to me scientifically that I'll be happy when I'll get married. How would you answer that question? Do you have any ideas? Um, this is right around the time when I was starting to take my faith seriously again. Right around the time when I moved to Vegas and started playing poker with atheists and uh, materialists and empiricists, positivists, is around the time when I started taking my faith seriously again. And it was questions like this that haunted me and got me thinking about vocation, seriously. How would you, how would you answer the question? This is a serious question, not, not to be dismissed, right? It's not, it's not a funny question. This is a, a serious question that he had. He, he didn't ask it in jest. And I would submit to you that many young people today are asking similar questions to that. How, how can I know what God's plan for my life is? How can I know what to do in order to be happy? How, how can I know? Right? They, they, they want proof. They're kind of like Thomas. You know, they, they want to be able to touch it. They want some proof about what they're supposed to do. And these are not just problems for the secular world. I want to warn everybody here that, that this is an issue that affects all of us. Um, and I think there's a, there's a mental model behind this question. There's a mental model and a myth that we really need to destroy. And it's the mental model of God 
as the sadistic poker player. God is holding the cards of my life in his hands, and he won't tell me what they are. And I don't know what they are. I've got to guess what cards he's holding, and I hope I guess right. Worse yet, he could be bluffing. He could be trying to trick me. This is a model uh, that comes from fear and anxiety. And I spent five years in seminary formation, and I promise you that this is a mental model that exists even within seminary formation, within the the best, most well-formed sort of Catholic homes and upbringings. This, This way of thinking about vocation really exists. I struggled with this way, this sort of calculating way of thinking about it. And one of the three obstacles to building a culture of vocation that we speak about in the book is this culture of calculation that we all live in, that it's, it's really hard to escape. We live in the world of money ball. We live in the world of, of, of calculating everything from politics to admissions rate in schools and even our own vocations. So when I was entering seminary formation, when I was discerning seriously, I was asking those types of questions as well. I would ask questions like, you know, what are the odds that if I enter that I'll be ordained? What are the percentages like? I probably tried to look them up. You know, what are the odds that, uh, you know, if I enter seminary formation and I leave the relationship that I was in and I sell my house and give my dog to my parents, how much will I be losing? Right? How much, how much will I be walking away? What will happen to my company? How much will I be walking away from? If, what happens if I leave? Will I, will I be too old? What, will, will my girlfriend have gotten married by then? Right? And you know, how, much, how much gray hair will I have by the time that I leave? Right? But I, I have a great answer for that problem. Zero. Right? <laughs> Zero gray hair for me. But, but I, I, had, I had the calculating, the calculating mind. Right? The Lord you know, doesn't greet us in, in heaven uh, with the words, good choice. You, you, you pick the right door. In the parable of the good steward, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? Because you have been faithful in small things, I will give you great things. Enter into the joy of your master. So being faithful and, and doing, being faithful and doing, but being faithful to what? Right? There's a reality in, in church teaching, which is not often discussed, but this is grounded in fun, the fundamental tradition of the Catholic Church, of personal vocation. And this book is essentially about the reality of personal vocation. Every pope since Vatican II has talked about it rather explicitly, but yet it's not something that we've really taken hold of as a church. And this is the, the, the reality of personal vocation is the thing that can help us solve this mental model of the sadistic poker player, right? Because it's, it's sort of this, our, our created design, our created design, um, the, the vocation that God has given us from the moment of conception, from the very beginning. So when we use the word vocation, at least in the Catholic Church, um, we, we think very specific things. If I was to say, hey, there's a vocation boom in this diocese. What would you think I was talking about? Anybody? More vocations to the priesthood or religious life. And that's a great, that's a beautiful thing. Um, but we're, we're, we're missing the fact that every single person has a unique and unrepeatable vocation. And 
what message does that send to, to everybody else, right? Um, so aside from state in life, which we often use the word vocation to refer to state in life, priesthood, religious, single life, married life, we use the word vocation to refer to the universal call to holiness, the vocation of everybody to become a saint. Sometimes we use it to refer to one's work or profession, but rarely is it used to refer to some underlying reality, a thread that runs through all of these things, that comes before the state in life and before work and after it. And it's, it's, it's deeper and wider and broader. It's the principle that animates every vocation. It's, it's, it's not just the what we do, it's the how we do it. So personal vocation is, is the seed that's present at the very beginning of a life that grows into a priest. It's the seed that grows into a, a happy marriage for, for those that are called to marriage. There's the seed of that vocation that is present from the very beginning. And this is the reality that I believe and Josh believes we need to recover. It's the reality that I wish I would have known about as I had so much anxiety about what my vocation in life actually was. Here is um, something that John Paul II wrote in his encyclical um, Redemptor Hominis, his very first encyclical, about this reality of personal vocation. He said, Every initiative serves true renewal in the church insofar as it is based on an adequate awareness of the individual Christian's vocation and his responsibility for a singular, unique, and unrepeatable grace by which he builds up the body of Christ. Pope Francis just recently in Gadate et Exultate said the important thing is that each believer discern his or her own path, that they bring out the very best of themselves, the most personal gifts that God has placed in their hearts rather than hopelessly trying to imitate something not meant for them. So personal vocation is at the root of all of the exterior manifestations of vocation. It's at the level of being, not doing. It's why a man becomes a priest. By living out his personal vocation, he will naturally become a priest by going through the, the, the proper discernment. When I was discerning my vocation, I seriously considered the, the priesthood for some time. And this is before I really had a grasp of, of this reality, before I'd done the self-reflection that I needed to do to understand who I really was. And I think in the church, you know, we have a shortage of vocations for the priest and religious life. So the temptation is the knee-jerk reaction. Let's spend some money and put together a really great marketing video, right, about how great the, the priesthood is and the religious life is. I have to say, those, those videos were an obstacle to me. I had to, I had to overcome how they made me feel in order to enter seminary formation. And same with, I had a great vocation director, but the vocation director, I thought to myself, you know, I'm really not sure if I have a vocation of the priesthood. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm trying to figure out how to be a Catholic entrepreneur. And I feel like if I meet with him, I think I know how this meeting is going to end. Um, you know, he's going he's to push me through the door of a seminary when I'm not looking, right? So I was, I, I was, I was nervous. And, um, you know, I, I, I took steps forward, and I entered seminary formation. And after a long and fruitful and good period of discernment, I discerned that part of my personal vocation is to be an entrepreneur. Um, and now I'm at the Bush School of Business, integrating everything that I learned there 
uh, with everything that I learned in my in my life as an entrepreneur, having started a few companies before that. What really would have spoken to me and consoled me is not a marketing video telling me that the church was there to support me to become a priest, but that the church was there to help me find my vocation, no matter what it is, whether it's to be a doctor, whether it's to the business school at Catholic University. And if it is to be a priest, great, but walk with me from the beginning. Help me understand my story. Help me understand how God created me. This is good news to people. This is good news to young people. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is to let them know that we're there from the very beginning. And how can we do that? So the the second of three sort of themes that I want to touch on tonight is the importance of story, the importance of storytelling. I was asked many times um, as a seminarian about my vocation story, right? And it was usually sort of between the appetizer and the main course at dinner, right? And I get all excited, and I, I think, wow, there's like a thousand different moments that all add up to this one, one singular moment when I realize that. And I look at the person and realize that they were wondering, thinking about the fish you know, for the next course. Right? Um, I try to squeeze it all in. That's not a story. That's, that's a meme. That, that's me. The longer you're a seminarian, the more you learn to condense it down to like a 20-second sound bite, right? Um, very few people took the time to really understand my story from the beginning. What about my story before I entered seminary formation. Um, It's why I entered seminary formation, and that's why it's so important to know. Josh Miller, who is my co-author and my mentor, I wish so badly that he was here tonight because Josh has been doing phenomenal work for over 20 years that a lot of people don't know about yet, but I I think that's going to change. Josh was... Uh, one of my assistant professors when I was getting uh, a degree from Franciscan University of Steubenville. And he has a background, he's a, he's a, his degree is in philosophy of the human person, but he spent 20 years, he calls himself a biographer of other people's lives. And he uses a narrative method to help people understand their created design because grace perfects nature. We have to understand our created design because they're the fingerprints of God. How did he make us? And that design is present from a very early age. Josh would argue, he's got six kids, he would argue that it's present in the womb, some some hints, some hints of what that created design might be. And he took me through an exercise, and this is something I would recommend to everybody who has anybody in their life who is struggling with discernment. He said, Luke, tell me about a time in your life. You can go back as early as you want, any period in your life where you did some action, right? It was active, where you believe that you did it with excellence, you did it well, and where it brought you a deep and abiding sense of joy and satisfaction. It's like in positive psychology, it's called flow, these, these instances of flow in our life. And I told him one, right? It was designing an orange peeler invention in my fifth grade class. And he said, Tell me another one. I told him another one. And I'd forgot about some of this stuff, guys. I mean, I, I, it, so he said, Luke, you, you, like your face is lighting up as you're telling these stories. And I said, I don't know. These were things that I'm really proud of that I'd forgot. I'd forgot about when I pitched the, the no-hitter in my Little League baseball game. I forgot about these things. We spent a few hours together, right? Great generosity on Josh's part, listening to me recount all of these stories. He calls them achievement stories, but we don't mean achievement in, in the worldly sense of the word. We mean achieve, achievement in the sense that 
I'm living out my created design. And the reason that it feels so good and the reason that it brings me so much joy is because it's the way I was created, right? So after telling eight or nine of these stories, um, Josh says, okay, you know, and uh, I, I'm, I'm beginning to see patterns in your motivation, patterns in your unique design. And over the course of, of, of weeks and months, we talked about those patterns, and I began to identify some core motivational drives that I had through this narrative process. Josh was able to awaken in me things that were in some sense dormant, things that I'd forgot about. And if you ever do this with somebody, just it, it's, it's such a pleasurable experience because you will see the joy with which they tell you these stories. And you get to know them faster and better than you would ever get to know them if you were asking them the typical questions. What do you do? Where do you live? You know, where do you come from? All of those things. This will help you get at the essence of, of a person and understand who they really are, what they're passionate about, what brings them joy. And it's a beautiful, beautiful exercise to go through. So I, I want to offer that as one of the many tools that we talk about in the book, as, as a narrative-driven process, knowing each other's stories, caring about the young people in our lives, wondering about them, and most of all, loving them. Because the thing that made me open up and share so freely these stories with, with Josh is because I could tell how attentive he was and I could tell that he loved me. And there's no substitute for love. This is not a, sort of a, just an exercise to, to run through. You've got to love the other person to be able to sit there for three hours and listen attentively to these stories of, of joy-filled action. And Josh did it. And we all, I think, know the experience of, of being in front of a person and talking to a person who isn't really that interested in what you have to say and who doesn't love you. Our tendency is actually to close up, is to close up and not reveal much of ourselves. Josh did the opposite for me. So that loving, empathetic gaze and receptiveness to what I said, entering into my story, and theologically, this is exactly what God did for each one of us through the incarnation. He, he broke into our stories. He entered into our stories through the greatest act of empathy that the world has ever known, this divine empathy, the divine condescension to come down and be a part of our stories. And we have to do the same for young people. The marketing videos won't cut it. We, we've we've got to be willing to take the, this a shortcut. We've got to be willing to take the time to truly enter into young people's stories, and not just young people, but even our colleagues, uh, our, our, our coworkers, our friends. Um, you know, I've, I've realized uh, since meeting Josh that I have friends I, I couldn't tell you. You know, the, these stories of joy from their lives. But over the last couple of years, um, I've been able to ask those questions, and I've been able to learn more about them than, than I've ever known before. So my third and final point is simply the importance of mentorship the importance of mentorship. I mentioned that Josh was a mentor to me. Um, he's one of, I've been very blessed to have several mentors in my life, people that have taken an, an interest in me and wondered about me and helped to cultivate my vocation. This is an old, uh, this is an old practice, right? Socrates even talks about it as myutics, midwifery. He, you know, he says, look, I'm, I'm like a midwife to this idea, this truth, and I'm, I want to help get it out of you. I want to help you because we can't 
we can't discern on our own. We need other people to reflect back to us who we are and certain truths about ourselves. And that's the importance of mentors. So in a sense, you could say, I know it sounds a little funny, but you could say that each of us is a midwife to the vocations of other people in our lives. And if we don't take up the responsibility that we have to play that role, there's a chance that a unique and unrepeatable vocation could be lost to the world forever. That, that's really how serious I think that this, this whole issue of vocations is, precisely because a vocation is unrepeatable. Vocation is, is an unrepeatable gift, and we have an opportunity to discover it, embrace it, and live it out in each one of our lives. And that, friends, is what I believe is the, is the key to renewing not only the church, but our entire culture, our entire culture, cutting through the noise and getting at the people behind it all. Many people who, who lack a sense of purpose, especially young people, especially young people that are, that are in college that are trying to figure out what to major in, that are trying to figure out what they want to do, what they're passionate about. Um, we need to step up. If, if everybody in this room over the next year um, had one person, had one person to mentor, I truly believe we would change Washington, D.C. I honestly believe that. Um, so the importance of mentorship is critical. And I think that we, uh, we need... We need to go big with this, and I, and I don't quite know how to do it. The entrepreneur in me is, is thinking about a lot of things. Josh and I are, Josh actually, is offering mentorship training uh, starting in a couple of weeks. Um, he's going to be offering basic skills that he taught me, how to ask good questions, how to listen empathetically, right? how to be a good biographer of young people's lives, how to awaken those seeds of joy and, and create a design that are in their lives. Because personal vocation is like a secret key to discernment. It's like a hermeneutic, a, a way to discern and interpret the events in our life based on my personal vocation, right? So, you know, it means that I'm a particular kind of entrepreneur. There's not just a vocation to business in the abstract, vague sense. I have a very specific vocation to business, and I would never know it if I hadn't dug down and did these things. Um, same thing with, with the priesthood. A personal vocation means that there are as many different kinds of priests as there are men who are priests. And it means that you know, one man will celebrate the Mass in, in, a, in, in, in a unique way, um, will hear confessions in, 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 his, in a unique way because of who he is. His humanity is still there. So personal vocation is the thread that runs from the beginning to the end of life and and, and gives shape and context to all of these vocations. And if we go back to the beginning, if we start with the the seed and we focus on cultivating that in every person, we will naturally have more vocations for the priesthood and religious life and we'll naturally have people living and embracing all kinds of beautiful vocations. So I want to close with a promise that John Paul II basically made if we, if we do this. He made a promise. And this also comes from his encyclical um, Redemptor Hominis, which is on the Redeemer of Man. It's his very first encyclical of his pontificate. And as you may know, the first encyclical of a, of a papacy kind of sets the tone of, of the whole papacy. John Paul II used the word unrepeatable six times 
and Redemptor Hominis. Six times. Speaking about, in large part, personal vocation. At the top of our book, Unrepeatable, is one of the quotes, and it says, Each person, unique and unrepeatable, is the way of the church. What does that mean? Each person is the way of the church. Well, of course, Christ is the way of the church. He is the way, the truth, and the life. What John Paul II is referring to is that through the incarnation, Jesus united himself. Through the incarnation, he united himself to every person. And therefore, as Christ is our doorway into the deepest reality of everybody that we meet, the opposite is also true. By, by entering a person's story and following that way, that pathway to the end, we also eventually encounter God in and through that person because they're made in the image and likeness of God. So each person, unique and unrepeatable, is the way of the church. How do we get back to the people? And here's what he promised us. John Paul II said, Jesus Christ is the chief way of the church. On this way leading from Christ to man, on this way on which Christ unites himself with each man, nobody can halt the church. Nobody can halt the church. Those are strong words, um, and that's a promise. So I hope and pray today that we have no more artists in the church who never paint. I hope that we have no more entrepreneurs who never start a company or at least think like an entrepreneur. I hope we have no more priests that never celebrate a mass. I hope we have no more mothers that um, are never able to be mothers. And the responsibility is ours to help cultivate those seeds from, the, from an early age, from the beginning, um, both by the witness of our lives and living out our own big vocations. There's nothing more important than that is, is the witness of living out our vocations first and foremost. And second, to help each and every young person, regardless of whether they're, they're going to be on a baseball field, in an operating room, or in the sacristy, to discover and embrace and heroically live out with joy their unique personal vocation. I think we're going to set the world on fire if we can do that. So thank you. Thank you so much. We now have some time for some questions. Um, if you have one, please just raise your hand, and I will hand the mic to you. Um, hi. Thank you uh, for your talk. That was really great. Um, what advice do you give to people in their 20s who don't have a mentor, and they're kind of in that phase of discernment that just naturally comes with being in your 20s? Mm-hmm. How do you, do you just ask someone to be your mentor? What's, what's the, the advice that you could give? Sure. I was 27 before I had a mentor. And I, I didn't ask. I, I sort of he broke into my life at, at an event at my parish one night. So, put yourself in a position to have collisions is what I call them, right? Co- collisions with grace. Um, so the, the more opportunity for collisions, the better. Pray about it. Certainly, um, you should always pray. Lord, send me a mentor. Um, but but it never hurts to ask. It it, it really doesn't. Um, I've given so many talks at, at colleges and high schools and. Um, you know, at, at the end of the talk, I always, you know, make my email and phone number totally available. And um, very, very few people sort of, uh, you know, ask for help in any way, whether it's about business or, or mentorship. But like, you know, a year later, you know, they'll, they'll come to me and say, hey, Luke, I'm really struggling. You know, would you mind mentoring me in this? You know, I've, I've been meaning to ask you for a year, but I was too scared, right? 
so I, I think just having the, having the courage to ask, because you, the worst that can happen is, is they say, I don't have time. Luke, maybe you could address a bit how you might integrate this whole idea of vocation, as you guys have defined it, into the HR function, the human capital functions of organizations. It seems like it could be a significant uh, investment, both in terms of time and energy as well. Sure. Um, yeah, no, thanks for the question, Jerry. It's a great question, and uh, this is something that I've thought a lot about as, as a business owner, right? Because this is not just a, a, a theological concept at all. This is very practical. And I've seen the way that this very sort of a Christian personalist approach to HR can completely re-energize an organization and a company. If people basically um, feel that they're, people know who they are, at the end of the day. Well, that's easier said than done. And I don't even want to touch the, the cost aspect of this and how to integrate this in a large organization. Um, we'd have to have a, a lot longer conversation about how to do that. But I think there are simple things, right? Um, assigning, assigning mentors in companies is an easy way to start, but I think those mentors need training. I naively presumed that I was a great mentor, you know, um, and I had a lot to learn. You know, uh, just because I'm, I'm older than somebody or I've, I've done certain things or started a couple of companies doesn't make me a good mentor. So I, I think formation and training is one of the most important things that we can, we can offer. So if a company is going to do it, they should offer training. Uh, also, one of my friends, Fred Kirschman, who's a, a very well-known um, organic farmer, his mentor was one of his students. He had a student in his class that basically challenged him um, and changed the course of his life by, by telling him about organic farming. He left a career in academia, moved back to uh, Mont uh, South Dakota, and uh, that's now he's one of the world's leading thinkers on um, sort of human ecology. Right? So uh, a mentor program, training, and some process to know each other's stories. I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, but I can't overemphasize the, the power of people telling their stories. Um, I tend to use it in interviews that I do as part of uh, an HR process. I don't do eight or nine, but I'll, I'll do one. You know, tell me about a time in your life where you lost track of time, when you were in flow, when you were engaged in something. Um, I think that's a powerful question to ask, but I think there are ways to integrate that into continuing development in organizations and into the very fabric of the uh, HR. Nobody's calling it HR anymore these days, right? It's like director of culture or something like that. Look, I love I'm halfway through the book, really love it. A uh, couple of questions that occurred to me. One is I was wondering about if you could speak to, uh, and I don't know if you addressed this later on in the book, but you know, are there dangers to introspecting too much, right? So this, this whole um, you know, trying to identify patterns from the past and you know, patterns of flow and so forth, uh, could that potentially inhibit openness to something new where uh, you might grow in new ways if you weren't trying to sort of you know, peg your, your path based on something from the past? Mm -hmm. uh, the other question I have is... Um, what, what, what is the role of um, responding to problems and needs in the world that arise in front of you, right? So, so that you may not be able to discern that from introspection at all, but mm -hmm. um, you know, making a contribution, right? So, so moving um, towards sort of solving a problem in the world, which is you know, precisely what you do as an entrepreneur. So how does, that, how does that dynamic work, responding to needs in the world? How important yeah, is that? That's a great question, Brandon. Um, on the first part, on the, the, the introspection, um, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Joan of Arc is, act and God will act. Act and God will act. So one of the themes of the book 
is the idea of, of co-creation, co-creation with God. In a way, we are actually co-creators of our own vocation. And this is kind of the way out of the sadistic poker player problem, right? Act, right? When I go to a restaurant, sometimes I get, you know, menu anxiety is what I call it, right? Like, I don't know, fish, fish or beef, I, I don't know, you know. Um, and I could stay in that state for a long time. Order one, Luke, right? Um, you'll figure it out. Uh, so I think acting is, is important, and, 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 but recollection is also important. So I think when in doubt, act, right? And one of, the, re- one of the, the reasons why the whole exercise is based on action. What did you do? Not, oh, I watched this movie. It's not passive experiences. It's action. So we learn through our actions because um, actions follow being. So I think that's an important point. Um, so we, we want to emphasize both. To the second question, needs in the world, um, Frederick Buchner has, has a wonderful quote, and we addressed this in the last chapter of the book, which is on mission. And uh, somebody else in here may know the quote. I, I might mess it up. But I think he says, um, the place where God calls you is the place in the world where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. So did I get that right, Kathy? No? Okay. All right. Close. Um, but, I, but it's, it's something like that. And so the idea is when we give ourselves in service, which is a, a vocation is a process of going out of ourselves. That's, that's how we discover it, is by going out of ourselves in service to others because every vocation is ultimately for others. And the entire last chapter of the book, which is called Mission, is all about that, right? It's all about that. Um, you know, when I was in seminary formation, I had that problem of introspection. My vocation was all about me. Like, what, what is God calling me to do, right? Um, it was actually when I, when I just got out there, right, and started serving other people that things started to make sense. I started to understand myself. So I think that is, uh, that is a critical point. And in fact, in helping others cultivate their own vocations, in serving other people in love, we end up discovering our own. So through this whole process of, of cultivating the vocations of others and serving them, and it's one of the greatest acts of love is simply to help another person become who God created them to be. Not who we want them to be, but who God created them to be. It takes a lot of humility to do that. And I think in the very process of serving others and in, in doing that, um, it helps our own understanding of how we're being called. I hope that addresses the question. Um, you had mentioned the phrase a few times, young people, I would like to mention that um, to not abandon people who are no longer in their 20s. So as you go on with your decades, all kinds of things can happen in a person's life, good and bad, sometimes even really bad, financially, Mm health-wise, spouse abandons you, whatever might happen. And I think as the years go on, people need to reassess and look at what they can do as it changes and to be able to have someone to refer to and to address that as well as as time goes on. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, and um, I have uh, I have definitely not. Um, I'm still discovering my own personal vocation. It's something that that evolves in the different roles that we're in in our lives. And you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is this kind of logocentric uh, understanding of vocation that God created each of us with a word, and um, you know, I, I may not know with clarity that word that God had in mind when he created me until, you know, I meet the Lord face-to-face someday. And, and a vocation is something that it's always exciting because, th- you know, through the different seasons of life, things change, and uh, we're always in need of help and support. So um, we certainly talk about, when I say young people, we talk about young people because we're starting there. 
Uh, we're starting there because we, we've seen the crisis, and we're working with some universities now to weave this, um, this idea of vocational discernment and mentorship into the very fabric of the undergraduate experience. So important. We have academic advisors, but what about people that are helping us discern our vocation in the first place? Um, but I, I totally agree. I think it's a great point. Thank you. Is there any danger that you could get a bad mentor, someone that's not very sensitive or aware, uh, someone that may be envious and may actually wish you ill? Or you know, I'm just curious. <laughs> you, you've had good ones, but you know. I, yeah, I, I've been lucky to have good ones. I, I think you're right. I think that um, there is a, there's always a danger of that. Um, what do we what do we do about that? Um, so one of the things that we address in the book um, are some things to think about when choosing a mentor. Some things to think about. Um, kind of like choosing a, a spiritual director, right? Making sure there's a good fit, um, making sure um, that this person truly has your best interest at heart, and that they have basic competencies, basic skills, and co- that they know how to listen is, is very important. Um, so, you know, so when I was, uh, I was answering a question earlier, Jerry's question about organizations, I was emphasizing the, the, the training and, and why, why it's important to have some process of vetting. So if we were going to um, do some kind of formal implementation in a company or in a school or in a diocese or something like that, we would need some kind of structure around how people are, are chosen as mentors, certainly protecting God's children and all of those things. But on top of that, how do we make sure that they really are looking out for the best interest? I think vocation mentors need to be intensely interested while also being disinterested. And what I, what I mean by disinterested is, is not interested in any outcome for their own gain. So we need to be intens- intensely interested while also being disinterested. Because if I think that somebody wants me to sort of do a certain thing, I start to shut down. Right? I feel like I'm being sold something or, or convinced to do something. And that's a real danger. I, I, I think it's a real, and I tried to emphasize that in the beginning, with sometimes the way that we think about vocations and, and with the, the marketing sales way, it's almost like we're selling a lifestyle instead of a vocation itself. And it's a danger. Hi, Hi, and thank you for coming. Um, I'm really glad you're doing this. Um, I have to say it, we are in a crisis situation Um, with our young people and I hope that you can create a movement or or else at least be a resource um, within our Catholic community or even larger because our young people our young adults all right those graduating from college are not even going to college because they just don't know what they want to do you know that's a period of their lives lives where you know even if they were formed well through Catholic schools and so forth, they're going to drift away for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I feel like most people do for a while until mm-hmm. they get married and then they come back and so forth. So there's this gap time that's very, um, I don't know, dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, not to disrupt this warm and fuzzy feeling we got going on here, but our kids are dying. This mm-hmm. opioid crisis, these good Catholic kids they're dying mm-hmm. because they have uh, failure to launch, fear of, of going forward in today's society. I mean, there's a need out, a, a huge need out mm-hmm. there right now that's not being addressed by our church. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I don't have any evidence that you know, young, uh, young Catholics or Christians are faring any better than anybody else when it comes to these issues. 
Um, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think I'm hesitant to, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so um, my temptation is just to start some new organization or program or something like that. But if I understand what John Paul II is saying, is that he's saying that the way of the church is each person, right? So it's not a program, it's not a five-step program, it's not an organization or an institution or some new method or anything like that. It's just a, an intense focus on each person and walking the way of each person. So we're trying to figure out how to do that. I'm not saying no structure is needed, um, but I think that's the key. There's a couple things that we're working on now. One of them is, you know, students are taking gap years these days, either after high school or after college. Um, one of the things we propose in the book is a mission year, a, a, a gap year, but not just I'm going to take a year off to figure out what I want to do, actually giving them resources, discernment tools, um, maybe a spiritual director, a mentor, um, and then also internships and experiential learning to expose them to different things and, and help them understand uh, what it is that they want to do. But I agree um, that there's a crisis, and uh, you know, I think we're proposing that we sort of need to go back to the roots. We need to go back to the beginning because uh, there's, not, there's not an easy fix for it, unfortunately. You know, I was just saying, you know, once upon a time we, we spent time with each other. You know, like you'd have an uncle or the old guy down the street or the old lady down the block. And you'd get to know them. They'd get to know you. And, and they were those mentors. You know, it wasn't institutionalized. It's just we had, we had time to get to know each other. And I think that's what's missing nowadays. Everyone seems to be in such a rush. It's hard to even have dinner together as a family sometimes. Um, so a lot of it has to do with slowing down, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, when I honestly do an examination of conscience and ask myself, you know, how well um, do I know some people that I'm very close with? The honest answer is not that well, not that well at all. Um, you know, I gave, I gave a talk here last night, actually, and I was reflecting on this idea of a, a limited liability company, an LLC, um, because every company that I've ever started has been a limited liability company. And I thought to myself, you know, often we, we lead limited liability lives, limited liability lives, right? I've got my work here, my, my, my faith here. I've got, I, I see these people at this particular time, and uh, I don't want to lead a limited liability life, right? Like, like a company, the whole concept of a LLC is to shield the company from, you know, lawsuits and things like that. It's protection. But I think uh, getting out there, get, getting out there and, and being vulnerable and making the time uh, to encounter people, right? Um, our Holy Father uses that word a lot, and I think he's right to do so to have genuine human encounters because we don't have as many opportunities. We don't have front porches in most places anymore. Uh, we don't make time to eat together, and those things are all critical. Hi, right, thank you very much. Uh, I have many thoughts, so I'm sorry if they're not going to come out in, in good order. Um, Mine didn't either. It's, okay. it's fine. <laughs> it, was, it was very good. Um, I'm happy to be sitting here uh, in front of St. Catherine of Siena. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work with the Catherine of Siena Institute with the discernment of Absolutely. charisms. Um, and so I was thinking about a lot of that when you were speaking, and the question that's coming to my mind now is, you know, a lot of a lot of the discernment of charisms work presupposes that a person knows Jesus Christ, has a commitment to the gospel, and is kind of fundamental vocation to growth and holiness, to growth in service to the world and to the to the church. Um, and so my question is, how do you uh, how do you navigate the fact that you're mentoring people and working with people a lot of times who don't have a sense of their basic vocation as a human being to know, love, and serve God, 
Um, and yet, you know, you're guiding them in their natural gifts, maybe supernatural gifts. I mean, how do you navigate this, you know, need for evangelization as well as this need to help people be productive citizens and, uh, you know, productive members of a company or, or something like that? Yeah, you know, I think meeting, meeting people where they're at is, is very important. So, you know, when I started to think seriously about my vocation, you know, here I was in the middle of Las Vegas, you know, trying to run a company, and I needed the basics. I really needed the basics. And uh, one of my first encounters, even before I met Josh, was just a, a, a layman. He was an attorney who gave a talk at my local parish about the importance of prayer. Uh, you know, and, and he told me about how he manages to pray all day long at work while he's writing very boring legal briefs. You know, and, and he did it by dedicating an hour of his work, like each hour he dedicated to a different person. And he would take a minute at the top of every hour, he'd pray for that person, and, and then he would do his work for the next hour with excellence and love, and he would offer it to that person as a prayer. So for me, that was like, I'm just learning how to pray again for the first time. You know, you got to start there. You can't talk to me about whether or not I want to be a priest until I understand what prayer is. And that, and that prayer can be that. That prayer can actually be my work and my action. Um, and that, that, you know, changed my life and, and got me thinking about serious questions. And that gentleman also is one of an, another mentor in my life who walked with me every step of the way, invited me into his home and I, to be with his family. He was with me when I entered seminary, and he was with me when I left seminary. And that's important. He, he just was walking with me, and we addressed things as, as they came up. So I think having that, the person that's going to be with you no matter what, right? I mean, th- this Jesus... Jesus didn't have these boundaries, right? People were, you know, the, the, it's important that nobody has, has, a, has a fear, um, no, matter, no matter what situation they're in, of starting the process. The important thing is that they start the process, and it doesn't really matter where they're at before they do. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody.